Welcome to episode number 100, Hope. I'm your host, Damon Soka. As always, today, if you find that you have enjoyed a particular episode or podcast or the series, please forward this series on to two other people. Now, many of you have been listening for some time. You've probably noted that I have a favorite story in the New Testament uh, that is found in John chapter 5. The story is a short one, so I'm going to read it. It starts in verse 2 and, for our purposes today, goes to verse 9. Now, there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the movement of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and he knew that he had been been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Now Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Now out of, out of the many important concepts here, there are a couple that I want to focus on today that I just want to pull from this scripture story. The first is the great multitude. This is a multitude who are desperate. They have attempted everything to overcome and cure their illnesses, and it is obvious at this point nothing has worked, or at least has worked well enough. They are barely hanging on to life, and something else very important for really all of us who suffer, they are hanging on to hope. Never mind that the superstitious idea of an angel disturbing the water is somewhat ludicrous and crazy. Never mind that only one of them are going to be healed, if the disturbance ever comes to the water. And never mind that this pool of water is probably really no different than any other pool in the surrounding area. These people have nowhere else to turn. And so they hang on to this small hope that somehow the Lord will send that angel and they will be the first to bathe in that redeeming water or saving water. The second thing to note is that many of them were blind, impotent, unable to walk and see, and really do not have any hope of being first to the water. The man approached by the Savior said as much to him directly. This man desired healing as much as the one next to him, and the one next to him, and yet he knows that what little hope he has is very unlikely to produce the results he desires. He will not be the first unless someone mercifully arrives just in time to carry him to the water, And that person would probably have to know when the water would be disturbed to make sure that the man was the first to bathe because of the multitude. So if we really perceive this man and his hope for a cure, his hope is really hopeless, if you consider the reality of the situation. But interestingly enough to him, and the many more like him, who all have a minimal chance of making it to the water first, sit by this pool with hope. Now the question is why? It seems entirely illogical that someone would sit waiting for the movement of the water with little to no expectation that he would ever be the first to the water. Now, perhaps he is hopeful that the water will heal more than one. Perhaps he is thinking that maybe a partial healing would be available to him after someone else has gone first. 
There are many, perhaps, reasons for him to be there without any expectation of help. I tend to think that he is there because there is nowhere else to be. Everywhere else holds no hope for him. At least by the water, he has a flicker of hope that somehow he might be healed, however unlikely that healing might be. He can dream. The water provides what little hope is available to him. For him, there are no other viable options, and that is true for every one of the multitude that's sitting there. He has done what he can, and now he must wait for the supernatural, even understanding, at least in part, that the superstition doesn't make a great deal of sense. Hope is an interesting emotion. It lives in the present, but is connected in almost every case to the future. Take, for instance, this man waiting for the water. His hope is multifaceted in that he is hoping that the water will be disturbed. He is hoping that someone will show mercy. He is hoping for a miracle. What he is really doing in his mind is transforming his present by hoping for future events that will free him from his endless days of misery, his illness. If you look at hope as just a pure emotion unconnected to the gospel, you will find that almost every person in the world carries a great deal of hopes and dreams. Even the most desperate immigrant living in a transitional or more permanent camp must carry at least some hope that the future will bring a change that allows them to return to their home or start over somewhere else. Without hope, misery is, well, far more miserable. We turn to hope in almost every facet of our lives where things are really not going well or as planned, and we turn to hope when things are going great. Hope is our lifeline, bringing us happiness and misery, and life where we see only death. Hope can be found in a miserable concentration camp and in a foxhole. It is really what allows us to move forward when everything is telling us nothing is going to get any better. Now, hope is also a unique emotional state, and in many cases, hope rubs up against reality. Experience and reality are also at play when we start to discuss hope. Often the hope of a child, who is less influenced by external events and practical experience, can be more pure in the sense of true emotion, of the true emotion. A child is less likely to allow personal experience and modern influences to alter their views of hope. We actually find children to be full of hope, and they can often believe in circumstances and future events without the need for experience or even evidence. Somewhere over time and experience, we as adults become less hopeful and what might be termed more realistic in our perceptions. Sure, we hope for crazy things at times, but our hope is often tempered towards what we believe so that we are not fooled by a false sense of what is possible and what is not. Now, speaking as members of the true church, if you combine hope with faith in the Savior and a true understanding of the doctrines of heaven, hope can become a powerful force in the lives of those who employ it correctly. Faith, which is often confused with hope, is a system of beliefs that comes to life when we introduce hope. Faith is also a forward-thinking desire. When we have faith in Christ, faith in his promises, we are taught those promises that bring hope into the emotional picture. Now, this hope drives us to act in faith and have experiences with the Spirit of the Lord in a variety of ways. And those experiences inform our belief in a God and that that God is in the detail of our lives. 
Now, our faith grows in confidence the more we experience the Spirit working in our lives, and we have what we call a confirmation of our hope. Now, hope is an emotion that is intertwined with faith. The scriptures are very specific that you cannot have faith without hope. We hope for certain doctrines and principles to to be true and promises, and we test them through our faith and action. Now, as our tests of faith turn in a positive direction, our hope tends to increase. As we have negative experiences, our hope tends to fade. If you reduce faith, then hope has to follow. Now, hope needs a consistent source of nourishment. Hope based purely on experiences with the world is typically dashed, rearranged, overcome, and beaten down. The world thrives on hope, but finds that most hope is ill-placed. And so, over time, people lose hope, change their hopes and desires to better match what they find in the world. And the world is a cold, dark, and lonely place. If we rely purely on the world, our hope will be actually very limited. But we are members of the Lord's true church. And we know that placing faith and hope in the world is really a recipe for disillusion and confusion. So let's return to the impotent man sitting, waiting for the moving of the waters. What has truly brought him to the place he is in? Something in his life, whether by birth or by accident, this man was dealt a crushing blow in his life with his legs. The inability to use your legs during Christ's time frame on earth was almost a death sentence. Nearly every occupation in that day was going to require the use of one's legs. True, one might have been born into a rich family, and then maybe the legs aren't as much an issue, but this man's fortune was not with the rich. There is no doubt in my mind that this man has done what he can in his life to work through his difficulties. But in the end, he sits waiting for a miracle, a superstitious miracle. In his response to the Savior, you can hear his fleeting hope and desire. When he says he has no one to help him into the water, you can almost hear and feel the desperation. The question is why he does not give up and go home. In this case, assuming he has a home. After all, his chances are very slim that he would ever find a cure in the water, given the one-person restriction placed on the superstition. And I even have often wondered if I would not do the same, sit by this water. Now, hope is just a strange emotion in that under the right circumstances, it looks past the statistics, the odds of success, and sometimes even reality to give a person the perception that somewhere in the future, things will be better than they are now. Take, for instance, this one man. The reality of his situation was and would continue to be, he would continue to be impotent. Even if the superstition was true, his reality was not going to change because in his reality, there were so many before him who would find the water long before he could even move towards it. Why sit with so many others and hope? Now, one could think that perhaps misery loves company, but I tend to think that misery or suffering under the right circumstances develops develops into compassion. Compassion is a learned emotion, and for most of us to develop this critical emotion, we have to undergo a transformation through suffering. But this man did not go to the water to develop compassion. Just as we don't purposely submit ourselves to suffering just so that we can learn to be compassionate towards others, he was drawn by the hope of the water. But there is also comfort and borrowed hope in being near and around others who suffer as you do. Being near others helps us to see that we are not alone in our suffering. 
strangely or maybe not so strangely, more service tends to be rendered by those who are suffering or who have suffered than by those whose life is running smoothly for the moment. Perhaps in our own suffering, there is relief found in providing service to another. Well, initially, this man probably did not go to the pool to find a suffering connection with others. He was hoping for a miracle. Hope is that driving emotion and can lead us to find answers, experience miracles, and increase faith. But there is a warning attached to this emotion. Sometimes our search for hope can lead us down paths that will most certainly cause serious harm. Hope does not distinguish whether a choice will lead to greater suffering down the road. Hope is simply a driving force that things will be better in the future. In our quest to manage a very difficult illness, our hopeful desires should always be checked against the doctrines of the church. Hope as an emotion can drive staying in abusive relationships, hoping they will get better, trying various drugs or treatments that border on questionable. Even turning from the gospel is driven by hope. Now, I know that that sounds strange to anyone who resides in the, within the walls of safety. But turning from the gospel can seem to be the answer when our hope in gospel promises of happiness, peace, and joy do not appear on the outside to happen because of our illness. We hope that by living the gospel, we will have a more prosperous, less problematic life. And certainly we hope for greater peace and happiness. We hope that our efforts, will, efforts bring at least some measure of gospel reward. When mental illness interferes with the gospel rewards brought by the Spirit, our hope in the gospel can be dashed by days and nights of terrible symptoms. Then our gospel hope is brought into question, and we begin to search for other means of relief. We begin to hope in other methods, philosophies, ideas, self-help, and various world-driven means for happiness and peace. What we find is there is no greater happiness and there is far deeper misery in that which does not center on the Savior, Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean that we don't hope for other methods of managing our illness to work in our lives, such as medical help. What I'm talking about is replacing hope in the gospel for other hopes marketed by a world looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Now, hope is critical to our illness. It is the one emotion that looks for fixes, remedies, and keeps us on this side of the veil. It has a powerful effect on our present emotional state and is essential to gospel growth. Now, there are a few important thoughts when we discuss hope and what we should consider when we fix our hopes to specific outcomes in our illness. One, our hope tends to be short-sighted. Sure, we desire eternal life and celestial living, but that result is a hope in the extended future. Our various desires of hope within us will compete under various pressures and experiences, and those that are closest to our present will get more attention than those of a much distant future. When we feel to hope in a particular ideal, philosophy, thought, or remedy, our first evaluation should always be the gospel standards. Because hope will do whatever it can to bring about the desired result, we must be cautious about philosophies brought forth by the world. This doesn't mean that we can't effectively use the knowledge of the world of science and medicine to address our hopes of management and even a cure. What this means is that we must evaluate our hopes at all times with gospel standards to avoid 
those short-term fixes and false cures. Two, as we discuss our illness with the Lord and how we can best address our needs, hopes, and desires, it is important and critical to align our hopes with the Lord's and not the other way around. Expecting the Lord to grant our desperate hope with immediate healing certainly can be a desire, but we, but we must allow for the Lord's plan for our life to supersede our hopes, if necessary, without serious complaint and serious spiritual disruption. Aligning our hope with the Lord can be one of the most difficult spiritual experiences of our lives, especially when our illness causes us to suffer physically and spiritually, and then limits our access to revelation, peace, and joy. Three, because we have experienced dashed hopes on a regular basis as part of learning the emotion in experiencing life and as part of our illness, we must not allow our dashed hopes to rewrite our hope into a limited functioning emotional organ that hopes for the best but really expects the worst. In my experience, when we focus on the worst possible outcomes as part of our hope, we limit our faith and our hope to what we would call a minimal functionality. We are not working through hope and faith, but are really protecting it against failure. When we do this, we severely limit growth and development. I get it. I do understand tempering our hope as it really is natural to do so. However, a warning comes with seriously tempered hope. Our faith will diminish and the possibilities of our lives will be severely restricted. What we must learn is to temper our hopes with the help of the Lord. Now, I understand that that is very difficult during depressive or anxiety-laden episodes, but outside of those symptoms and problems, we should really work to align our hopes with the Lord's plan for our lives. Four, and finally, and this is important, the one thing we can do to help one another is actually to provide hope. Even a glimmer of hope at a critical moment in time can bring sufficient help to get someone through the moment of crisis. Giving hope to others is one of the greatest gifts we can give. Encouragement and positive thinking are important, incredibly important when others suffer. The one thing I did not discuss today is that others can actually use our hope to bolster their own. With encouragement, we can help others through that tough moment as they live through our hope for them and our hopes for their lives. Depression and anxiety cause hope as an emotion to diminish drastically in the lives of those who are ill. By allowing our hope to enlighten the hope of another who is suffering, we can literally provide a lifeline until the episode subsides. Now, this is probably one of the greatest secrets of hope, that it is contagious under the right circumstances, and hope always begets more hope. As you ponder those hopes in your own life and you think about hope, may the Lord bless you to understand your own relationship with the principle and how you can allow it to best function more perfectly in your own life and with your illness. May the Lord bless you with hope as you do your part. Until next week.